Amen. So everybody's doing well this morning? Will you grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians? If you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up nice and high. Um, We have some that we would love to uh, get out there and put in your hands. We believe it's important to be able to follow along with the Word as we're in it. If you do not have a Bible, that Bible that they hand you is our gift to you. We pray that it would serve you well. But uh, if you guys would turn in your Bibles, iPads, phones, whatever you're using, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. We, we've been, I've, I've been sort of messing around with this idea for a long time, and we're trying to make some more intentional steps towards doing that, um, to kind of putting the, the majority of our worship time actually on the back end of the message. I'm warning you because this church follows after me. You're a bunch of procrastinators just like me, and so you're in the coffee shop till the last minute and all that kind of stuff just like me. I mean, I rarely even start on time. But, um, but we're trying to start doing some of that and, and put the teaching in the first part so that we have more opportunity. Uh, there's just times where it just feels like, man, we just got into the Word and we see these beautiful things of Scripture and, and, and then we're just like, amen, see ya, and then just go home. But to have some time to be able to, to process the things that God's speaking into our heart, to be able to pray with one another, to be able to pray with elders in the church, to be able to just worship God for the things he's revealing in our own hearts seems kind of important to us. So uh, we're sort of in the process of working out, you know, old habits die hard. And so we've always done it this way because we've always done it this way. And so it's kind of sometimes tough to teach old dogs like me new tricks, but we're working on it. So uh, just giving you that heads up. Um, Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I am typically give you guys quite a bit of background on the letter because I feel that the context is really important to what we're doing, and today that's the case as well. But today I'm also intentionally keeping the message very, very focused. Um, And I'll explain why in just a little while. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to just jump right into this. So let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that even right now as we bow our heads over your word, That, God, you would have your way with your people. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray, God, that that your Spirit would even come upon me for the very teaching of your Word. I pray, God, that things that might be said that are not in line with your heart, Lord, first may you shut my mouth from those things. But, Lord, if such things should happen, God, I pray they would never be remembered. But, Lord, the things of your word, the things of your spirit, I pray, God, they would be water on seeds already planted. I pray, God, that they would find fertile soil in the souls of your people. And I pray, God, that this text would produce its desired intent, that you would produce fruit in your people, that you would have your way with us, That you would change us by the very study of your word and this very opportunity to interact with our God and King. And that what would be happening here would be way more significant than some history lesson or moral fable. But God, may we have an interaction with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and may we be changed because of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a letter by the Apostle Paul written to a church he had planted years earlier. Uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians 1, or, or excuse me, the book of 1 Corinthians to address these 
awful things that were just going on in the church since he had founded it and then moved on to his next uh, mission field. Um, They had just gotten involved in all sorts of immorality and rebelliousness and divisions and all these things. And so he writes 1 Corinthians to address that. And now another period of time, maybe as long as six years has gone by between these two letters and there's other issues going on. In particular, there are some men, and this is important to know for our text today, some men that have come into the city of Corinth They've come in with all of these like letters of recommendation, with all of these credentials. They're shiny. They're polished. They're coming in saying, you guys have been listening to this Paul guy? That guy's a nobody. Man, that guy's sort of a wreck. I mean, here's... Let us help you. And they come in just looking the part and talking the talk, and they're preaching a gospel that is not in line with the gospel that Paul has preached to them. He's offering them, or these men are offering them prosperity and instant comfort and all of these sorts of things if they will follow their teaching. It really is the original prosperity gospel going on here. And so Paul, brokenhearted hearing what's going on and after some really difficult interactions with the Corinthian people, he writes this letter, which is the most emotional letter written in the Bible. It's this letter from a broken heart to the people of Corinth urging them to follow the doctrine, to understand the teaching of the gospel, to hold fast to it and to walk in it. And also, to some degree, he's also sort of trying to repair his relationship with them. Not to make himself look good. It's not that he's so prideful that he's offended or hurt that they made fun of him or that that people are throwing him under the bus, but it's just the sincere reality that he desperately loves the people in Corinth. He calls himself their father. He loves them. And so he writes this letter to them, trying to deal with all of these issues at the same time. And this particular text that we're looking at today deals specifically with these, this idea of his credentials, his ability, and who he is. And so he starts off in verse 1 by saying, this is in chapter 3, verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? In that day, letters of recommendation were very common for people who were going from town to town on different missions, whether it be of a religious nature, an educational nature, whatever the case may be. I mean, first of all, if you were going from city to city, it's not like they had motels at every exit. What you ended up having to do is either stay in these seedy, kind of sketchy inns that were in different cities or you would rely on the hospitality of people. These cultures were way more given to hospitality than we are in our day. But they would carry with them letters of recommendation to sort of prove who they are, and you can trust me because here's where I'm from, and and here's so-and-so who recommends me, and so can I crash on your couch, I guess is essentially what they would do. Um, But that would carry also over into the religious teachings and, and even the teachings of some of the apostles or some of the early church. They would travel with letters of recommendation at times to be able to come into the church and say, look, you can trust what I'm saying. I'm not just some dude that's wandering through like I'm connected with these apostles. I'm, I'm going to teach you rightly, and here's someone who can kind of vouch for me. And so that happened all the time. And from the context of this story, and, and actually coming in right on the heels of chapter 2, where he talks about these peddlers of the gospel that had come into Corinth, it appears that he's referencing them in particular, that these guys, these, as he'll refer to them later, these super apostles had come rolling into Corinth, and they had these letters They were like detailing all of their experience and how uh, gifted they were and how able they were to minister and all these sorts of things. And 
And they're questioning and have been throwing Paul under the table, questioning all of his credentials. And Paul's become aware of this. And so now he's writing in this letter saying, look, do I really need letters of recommendation for you guys? Do I really need this? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says to them, first of all, do I, you really need me to produce letters of recommendation to, to be able to minister to you guys and to be accepted by you guys? Look, you are, he says, my letter of recommendation. He says, I, my letter of recommendation is something way more significant than a piece of paper that can be put in the mail or even going further back. He's referencing the Ten Commandments, which we will touch base on in just a little while. Way more than something written in stone or written on paper, but, but something written in the depths of my very soul. You are my letter of recommendation. Earlier, Paul has said at this church, you are the seal of my apostleship. Now consider that just for a second. This church is a train wreck. It's a disaster. Like they have been involved in mess after mess after mess from incestuous relationships to full-on sexual immorality in all kinds of forms, getting drunk during communion, suing one another, dividing left and right over anything, looking down their nose at one another. There were all sorts of things going on. There were gender issues going on. There were all sorts of problems going on. And so if you were Paul and someone said to Paul, hey, um, show me a group of people, point to one of your churches that I could look at, and when I see that church, I would understand, yep, Paul is called by God to do this work. Well, what do we do when we do that? We go right to the top, right? We go right to the best example. This is what I'm capable of. On your resume, you try to downplay your failures, and you try to build up your successes, do you not? You're like, at the job that went well, you're like, I did this and this and this and this and this and this. And then that job you got fired from in high school because you were punk not doing what you did, you're like, oh, and I kind of worked there for a little while. Anyway, and then you just sort of move on, right? And so here's Paul. Give us a letter of recommendation. Show us that you are called by an, as an apostle. Who can we look to so that we can see your credentials for ministry? And his answer is the Corinthians. Not the Philippians people and their faithfulness and their support from him during suffering. Not the Ephesians people and their great doctrine and their love. Not, not any of these other people. He's like, it's the Corinthians. It's the mess. Which, which I guess there's a sense where you could say, I'm called to be an apostle because somebody's got to fix this. I guess you could say that, but that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is, my love for you is testimony to, number one, the gospel of God at work in you, and number two, the gospel of God at work through me. Because, first of all, there's this. God saved them. I mean, just don't, don't miss that. This church that is involved in incestuous relationships, drunkenness at church, all of these other things, the kind of church that in our day and age, if that hit the newspaper, that there was a church in our valley that was operating like that, I mean, we would talk, that would make national headlines that that was going on. And we, anyone that has any sort of understanding of biblical truth, would run for the hills from a church like that. And God saved them. Don't miss how important that is. He didn't go into Corinth and only pick the cream of the crop. 
He called people to be living testimonies of his unconditional love, and he did it in spite of their failures. He did it apart from merit. He did it as he teaches in Ephesians, by grace alone lest anyone should boast. He saved them. That alone should be testimony of the gospel. But then the reality that Paul, because of God's call on his life, continues to reach out to them. We talked about this recently. I mean, at what point would you just be done? The answer is long ago. I mean, none of us would put up with the things that Paul puts up up with. None of us would hang in there for as long as Paul does, especially in our current cultural climate. I mean, he wore white pants after Labor Day, I'm out. I mean, that's, that's really all it takes. I mean, people will end relationships and end fellowship over some of the silliest and most surfacey things in the world. But in Corinth, there is a litany of very legitimate reasons why you should say, I'm done with those guys. And yet Paul continues, and they break his heart, and he continues to reach out. This unconditional love that he continues to show them. Do I need any other call, any other evidence, I mean, that I am called by God to minister to you by this, other than the simple fact that I keep ministering to you? Because in my flesh, if it wasn't a call for, uh, from God, I'd be out of here a long time ago. So, so that's my call to you. I mean, if, I, if God can love the Corinthians, and if God can call me to love the Corinthians, then he can love anyone. That is an incredible testimony to the grace and mercy of God. When we read Corinthians, our tendency in church history, and especially in modern church history, is to read Corinthians with this sort of like, I'm going to have to read this book now. I came to it in my through the Bible calendar, and it's time to start reading it, but it's going to be a bummer because it's just going to tell me all these things I need to get in order and do right over and over and over. And that's true. There's a lot of things that First and Second Corinthians does call out that we should be aware of, but it should all be under the blanket of joy because we're reading about a church that is jacked up and God still loved them. So when we read through these things, it should give you hope. <laughs> I'm not sleeping with my mom. <laughs> that's something. So if God can still love that guy, if God can still work in that guy's heart, even though that guy's being disciplined, he makes it even clear that God's disciplining him because he's trying to win him back and call him back. And if, if God can save that guy, maybe, I, maybe I'm still within the reach of the grace of God. Like you should always read the Corinthian letters under a banner of joy and relief in the very just the reality of the gospel, that if God can love and bless a people that are going through these things, then look, you, no matter what you're, I don't care what you individually, I'm not talking to the church corporately, I'm talking to you as an individual. You are not outside the reach of the grace and mercy of God. He loves you. And when you read what Paul says to these Corinthian people about, I'm your spiritual father, that should translate to you that you have a heavenly father that is saying to you, Look, I I know what's going on in your life. I'm fully aware of all this stuff, but I love you. He delights in you. He delights in you. Most of you don't believe that. Most of us, deep down in our heart, we think that God feels about us the way we would feel if we were writing a letter to a people like this, frustrated and at the end of our rope. And yet God says he delights in his children. That's a beautiful truth. That should have totally got an amen, don't you think? (laughs) He delights in you, and he is good. 
So Paul says, do I really need a letter of recommendation after I've done all of this? I mean, just the work that God has done even in just saving you in the first place has to be some sort of testimony to the gospel call of my life. And so Paul's banking on that. And he says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Paul just puts all his cards on that table. You want letters of recommendation? I'm putting all of my stock on this. The fact that God has worked. I put, he says, my confidence in this. Now, notice something. He's saying I'm putting my confidence in this, but it's not arrogance. Now, what he's, what he's combating, if you will, is this air of superiority that's being spoken of by these people in Corinth, even about him. What he's responding with is confidence, not trying to equal or trump their arrogance. This is really important because what Paul's not doing is trying to say, no, I'm better than what they're telling you. If anything, he might be saying he's worse. And yet he's confident in God's grace. He's confident, he says, verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ. Not because of my work, but through Christ towards God, verse five. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here's what Paul's saying. They're saying he doesn't have the credentials, he doesn't have the background, he doesn't have the letters of recommendation, he doesn't have any of these stuff, he's not qualified like that. And Paul's not coming in and saying, oh yes, I am qualified because I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. What he's saying is, no, I am absolutely not qualified to do the work that God has called me to do. Absolutely. He is not making a claim of self-sufficiency. But what he is saying is, I have been called by God who is absolutely sufficient to do everything. He's not making claims about his ability. He's not making claims about his talent, about any of the things that they're pointing fingers at to say, you're going to follow Paul? You're going to follow that guy? He's not going note for note trying to respond to them and say, no, no, I'm, I'm a better teacher than you say. Remember this teaching? No, I'm qualified. Man, I've been studying for this long. No, 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 I met Jesus face to face. That's how I got saved. What about you? He's not doing any of that. He's going, no, I am completely unqualified. I am not sufficient to say that anything that has happened in my ministry has come from me. My sufficiency is God. And church, this is huge. You gotta get this. You gotta understand this. This is massive. This is the reality of gospel ministry. It's so different than the way that we look at so many things in this day and age in our culture. This is how God has chosen to work. God works through nobodies more than he works through somebodies. That's just the reality of it. In our Western context, we want the best of the best. Even our political systems, our school systems, we look for letters, we look for credentials, we look for the same sorts of things. And maybe sometimes when it comes to ministry, we might not look so much for letters of recommendation, but we might look for letters like MD or PhD or MDiv or any of those kind of things. I mean, we look for reasons to say that we can put our stock behind this particular person or we should choose this person to lead the charge in such a thing. But God doesn't always work like that. In fact, if you just go through just the reality of what God, the type of people just God uses just in the Bible alone, it paints a completely different story. I mean, just off the top of my head, without researching any, I just wrote down names that came to me. 
Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God as he was a moon-worshiping pagan in a foreign land. He got better, but it took a while. In fact, there were a couple of times where he would rather let his wife get taken into the harem of another man than actually take a stand and try to show some guts and stand up for his own bride. That's the father of the people of Israel. That's the ones that they say, Father Abraham, that's our boy. Moses. Well, Moses was a big dog in Egypt, and then when he tried to take things on on his own, he got beat down for it, runs for his life, and spends 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. 40 years. And this is what he says when God does call him. My Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. But the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now therefore, go. I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. Moses, maybe the most famous character in the entire Old Testament, riddled with insecurities. And God says, I know, I made you, but go, I'm going to do the work. You keep going, you can get to Joshua. Joshua, was he a military man? Yeah, but when you look at the tactics God called him to do, it wasn't exactly what you would call a blueprint for modern military success. He took down the fortress of Jericho with the marching band. The marching band. That's who he used. Then you go on to Gideon. When Gideon gets called by God to deliver Israel, he said this, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Not the who's who, the littlest of the littlest is the one that's used. And yet God uses him, but, but doesn't even just use him, whittles him down to an army of 300 people against an innumerable army. It was an army that was described as locusts plaguing the land, like a cloud of enemy taking over the land. Whittles him down to a tiny little army and says, here's your weapons, pottery and trumpets. And wins decisively. Samson. He was a womanizer with a love for drink. David, smallest guy in the family. Look, when when David, when Jesse, his dad, when his sons were supposed to be gathered together because the prophet was coming that was going to anoint one of the sons to be the next king of Israel, David didn't even get invited. They left him out in the field. No way he's choosing him. That little pipsqueak, no, we'll just leave that. It's his own son. And his dad doesn't even bother to call David in from the field. And that's who God chose. And then even from that, we know he had some women issues too. And ends up with a lot of blood on his hands as well. And yet, even more than that, you read the Psalms. Aren't the Psalms that David writes riddled with weakness and insecurity and fear? just riddled with them. And this is Israel's greatest king to this day. They would say this is their greatest king. What about Isaiah? Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, 5, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Jeremiah, he was just a teenager. He was just a kid. And he says, Lord, behold, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. And that's when that famous line where God responds, let no man despise your youth. What about Jesus' own parents? Let's talk in some New Testament stuff. Jesus' parents, just kids, teenagers. Was Mary maybe 13, maybe? Young, poor, 
from a little nothing of a town. John the Baptist, dude ate bugs and wore animal skins and lived in the wilderness. He's not exactly going to lead a ton of revivals in our modern context, right? If you see that guy, you're probably on the greenway in Medford. You know what I'm saying? Right? And that's the forerunner to Jesus. Jesus actually says of him what? No greater man was ever born of woman than him. That guy. Jesus himself, he certainly was not a nobody, so don't carry my comments too far. But he took on the form of one. Isaiah said there was nothing about him that would make men desire him at all. Nothing. Um, The Bible tells us that he was humble, spent most of his life, or much of his life, homeless, itinerant rabbi, uneducated compared to the elite of the day. His own family thought he was crazy. His very lineage in general is just riddled with all sorts of issue. Uh, His lineage, for one thing, in that day, to, to include women in his lineage would be unheard of. You didn't do that sort of thing. But the Bible does and in that lineage, it gives you these four women. Well, that, surely they held it together because these men have been a train wreck, right? Well, one was a harlot, one was a broke Gentile immigrant, one was an adulteress, and another was a prostitute. That's Jesus' lineage. Then you can go on to the disciples, big-mouthed fishermen, men with anger issues, prideful men interested in self-gain. One guy who became known for his doubting and skeptical negativity, Eeyore the prophet is pretty much, or Eeyore the disciples, what he was. A thief who probably became the most infamous traitor in world history. And those are the guys that Jesus chose to go do his ministry with him. I'm going to change the world and I'm going to use these guys. That's who he picked. Definitely didn't ask them for letters of recommendation. We know that for sure. And then look at Paul himself. He gave his life, his life's call and his dream was to eradicate Christianity. Wipe it off the face of the earth. And these are the people that God chose to change the world and to bring the gospel to you and me. This is our heritage. This is our heritage. Now, now can I just tell you guys right now, this is what gospel ministry still looks like to this day. This is what gospel ministry looks like. Um, I have this picture that I found online that I thought might help illustrate kind of what gospel ministry and service to God looks like. Can we put that first picture up? Okay, how many people have done this with your dad before? Dad, I want to help Mo, and this is what we do. Now, let me ask, who's doing the work, dad or daughter? Daughter. <laughs> right, you're staying after class. No, you ever done this with your kids? They're not pushing they feel like they're helping, they feel big and important and they're excited. I'm helping Daddy Mo, I'm helping Daddy Mo. But we all know in all honesty who's doing the work. This is gospel ministry. This is how God works. And, and actually, I'm probably being a little bit generous in this one. That's probably what I hope or wish it is. This is probably more accurate. Can you put the next picture up? That's probably gospel <laughs> ministry right there. This is gospel ministry. It's like take your daughter to work day. You're on the team, but God's doing the work. Now, I I don't say this to shame people or beat people down. You're nothing, you're nothing, you're nothing. Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes, no, I'm insufficient. God is sufficient. It's about putting the attention towards where the sufficiency and the glory is actually deserved, and that is towards God. This is gospel ministry. And can I say, in all places, and maybe even especially here at Heritage, let me just say this right away. 
Some of you might be new. You haven't been around long enough to experience you yet. Others of you, you have. You can just nod and go, yep, he's telling the truth. And you will, trust me. So just in case anything ever happens here or has happened here that somehow in any shape or form comes across as looking cool, let me assure you, we are not cool. Let me just assure you, I'll give you some examples, just your pastoral staff in general, okay? This Wednesday night, I preached a message this Wednesday night about humility on the fly. And what I mean by that is not that I winged it and just kind of preached it on the fly. What I mean is my fly was down the entire <laughs> service. You know what will make you humble? Preach a message on humility and have someone come up to you right afterwards and go, is your fly down? And you're like... Oh, no. <laughs> not cool. Everybody say it, not cool. Well, you said it a little too enthusiastically. Um, who else do we have? Sam. Okay, here's some things about Sam you don't know. Some of you, some of you guys are taking notes like I've never seen before. No, come on. <laughs> Sam can't spell to, to save his life. I love getting messages from Sam. They're entertaining, but they're challenging. It's like Wheel of Fortune. What is that? Um, what is that? Sam is a really gifted musician, but I mean, let's just face it, he started worship a couple of weeks ago by saying, are you ready to rock heritage? Please, not cool. Can we say it? Just say it with me. Not cool. Not cool. Okay, Brent, Brent's here. We can't pick on him too much because he's new and we need him to hang around. So we don't want to offend him too much, but he's from Georgia. I'm going to have him preach soon enough. You're going to hear his voice and you're going to be like, not cool. <laughs> All right. And for all you Oregon fans, he's an SEC diehard. So not cool. Say it with me. Not cool. Jeremy, Jeremy's from Cave Junction. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's that little town between Grants Pass and the coast that your kids, as you drove through it, probably said, it smells funny here, Dad. Maybe it was really hazy as you drove through. You ever notice their only restaurant's a pizza joint? Go figure there, right? Now, look, I'm kidding to an extent because we have some really gifted and some really talented people on staff here at the church and, and some really hardworking people here. But here's the reality. We are completely aware that we, that this church and none of its success is owed to our efforts or our energy or our abilities. Even if things that happen that come through those things, we are completely aware where our gifts came from in the first place. All glory for everything that is ever done at Heritage belongs to God. And to try to hold any of that to ourselves not only puts the future of this church in jeopardy because God will not allow idolatry, and that's what that would be, um, but it also, it's just stealing glory from the one who deserves it. All glory and honor goes to God. And most of our history can be summarized just of us trying to do the best that we can by the grace of God and then seeing him work. And that's just fun. That's just fun to see God work that way and see him be faithful over and over and over and over. I remember when we started at Jewett six years ago. Any of you guys remember Jewett, some of you people? Jewett, I, I, let me tell you the honest truth. I would go home from those services at Jewett Elementary School and I would beg God to do something to help us. Because it was a billion degrees in that gym. We started right in the middle of summer. And then, remember the bathrooms, ladies? Remember those? 
the bathrooms, because it's an elementary school, had half walls. So the women would go in the bathrooms, and they're like, oh, Sue, what's going on? Not much. <laughs> How are you? It's just awkward, and it was hot. Me and one of the elders, we actually put a ladder up when the school was closed one day, climbed up onto the roof and put tarps on top of the sunroof because what was happening is the sun would come through these sun lamps or sunroofs in the ceiling. I would watch people as I was preaching and that beam would come through and you would see people scooting their chairs around just trying to get out of the sun as it was going through. Take all of that and then pile it on the mountain of insecurities and fears that I personally had teaching. And I would go home every week and be like, I have nothing to offer these people. God, help me, because this will not last. I need your help. And by the grace of God, he has been so faithful to this church. But guys, here's, here's the thing, guys. I don't have to go back six years ago to tell you stories about me being on the ground saying, God, please help me. I have nothing. Because that happens every week. One of the things you guys are so awesome about, I, I, I received so many compliments and encouragement from you guys regarding teaching, but you gotta understand, you cannot imagine how many times Saturday night or Sunday morning I'm on the floor begging God saying, I have nothing. And that's not about, well, wow, you really pulled it together, Jeff. No, I was trembling as I walked up to teach. And God spoke in those instances, not me. If I spoke, there's nothing worth congratulating. But if God moves, that's special. And that's what gospel ministry is. And the idea of preaching in general really is not just about speaking some words that people find interesting, but it's about words of life that go into the heart, affect people's heart, and cause a spiritual change. And I can't just make that up. I can't just manufacture that through some sort of speech. The spirit of God has to move, not me. He just straps me to his back and says, come on, Jeff, let's go to work. And I get to enjoy the work that God is doing. That's what, that's what gospel ministry is. Now, we study, we work hard, we have talented people who have amazing gifts, but Oswald Chambers kind of summarized this best. These are famous words. You've probably heard them before. He says this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. That's what gospel ministry is. It is utter dependence on God. It's not, God gave me the gift. Thank you, Lord. I'll take care of it from here. But it's about, I'm thankful for the gift. You have blessed me. But even this gift in and of itself in me cannot accomplish the work that you need it to accomplish. I need you. And guys, that, that, should, that should play out in every area of our life. That should be the prayer of every, every married man. I cannot possibly show my wife the love that the gospel calls me to show her unless you do a work in me. I cannot possibly live a life of integrity with my husband, raising my children, running this business, whatever the case may be, unless, God, you work and move in me. That's gospel ministry. That's our prayer. That's the way that we are to live. 
Um, there's a story, actually, a beloved preacher from the mid to late 1900s or mid-1900s. His name was Vance Havner. Probably haven't heard of him. He hasn't been heard of from a lot of places, but, but he's well-known in some circles. And interestingly enough, he not only came out of North Carolina, and I'm not saying that just to, to prop him, though it's probably true, but, uh, but he, he came from a church called Corinth Baptist Church, it just so happens, before going on and doing some ministry where he was going to different towns and speaking and doing all this kind of stuff. And, and this is what he said about how his ministry began. When he wrote of the beginnings of his ministry, he said this, if there was ever a chance to prove that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and that when we are weak, he is strong, this was it. The Lord had strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. I love that. I love that. There's so many times that we spend a lot of effort trying to polish ourselves off and project professional and project strength. But really the overall overriding theme of the book of Corinthians is that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Hudson Taylor, one of the most famous missionaries of all time said, God chose me because I was just weak enough. God does not do his work by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough and he uses him. That's what Hudson Taylor said. And look, guys, the Corinthian people out of everyone should already know this because Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians. Put the text up here, would you? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. In other words, what he's saying is he's talking to these people that are saying, what's Paul's credentials anyway? Is he really wise enough to do this? Is he really trained enough to lead us? Is he really the guy we should follow? And yet, he points out in 1 Corinthians, the reality of the fact is, they weren't exactly noble. God didn't come into Corinth and pick the best of the best of the best. He picked people that weren't exactly noble, weren't exactly powerful, weren't exactly wise according to worldly standards. Why? Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And, and this is what he means by that. It's not about us getting up here or Paul here in his letter saying, you guys are losers. Admit it. Just admit it. You're losers. Put all your self-reliance down. You can't do nothing. Quit pretending that you are okay, I'm a loser. That's not the idea. The idea is about understanding how God empowers and where the strength to do ministry comes from so that all glory goes to God. Isn't that even what Jesus taught in the book of Matthew when he said, let our good works shine before men so that people would see them and give glory to who? To God. I mean, God is using us to save. And so in everything that we do, it should be bringing glory to God in everything. And this is what he's saying. So he goes, you know what? Sometimes I do things a way that are different than the world around you. Sometimes I'm going to pick the ones that aren't quite as spit and polished as the ones you might be used to. But it's because I want people to see me. Because the world needs me. And the result here should be motivating because there's a ton of people in this room that say, I can't serve, I can't minister, last week's message on evangelism, I can't do that because I don't know enough of it. If only I had a few letters, like my M.A., or my PhD, or my MDiv, if only I had the education or the training, if only I'd been through all of this kind of stuff. And this letter alone right here makes it, if, let me put it this way, if you want a letter, this is your letter. 
It says that God's sufficient and that you're not, and that's all you need. That's the reality of ministry, that you, if you are willing to lay yourself out there and allow God to work through you, if you're willing to say, I won't depend on my own abilities, my own ideas, and my own things, but I will follow you, and God, whatever you want to use me to do, I'll give you glory for it. Man, just buckle up, because you'll be amazed to see the things that God will do through you. But i got to close with this. This idea, this power, this calling that he will give you. Man, I will be your sufficiency. I will give you the strength. It's not just strength in general. It's not just, if you will renounce your own ability, I will make you strong so you can do anything. That's actually not what 2 Corinthians says. It says he has made us what? Able ministers of the new covenant. It's a specific calling that God says, I'm going to use you to be able ministers of the new covenant. And so I want to lay this out really clearly for you. If you've been taking a nap through this whole thing, wake up and please plug in with me on this. Because it never ceases to amaze me how many of us, no matter how long we've been going to church, when someone says, what is the new covenant? What is the gospel? We, um, well, it's, um, um, and I want you to understand something here. There's some words that Paul uses here in this letter in verses one through six that are really, really intentional and super familiar to any Bible student, especially these people in this day and age. He uses words that is calling their attention back to the covenant writings in in the, excuse me, the book of Ezekiel and the book of Jeremiah. And so, for example, Jeremiah 31, we can put the text up here. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's a very familiar passage to many of us, correct? But a lot of us may not even realize the actual context of how this is being written when Jeremiah wrote these famous words. See, he talks about this idea. I'm going to give you a new covenant, not like the old one. The old covenant happened during the time of Moses. We refer to that most commonly as the Ten Commandments or the law. God said to the people, I will be your God. I will use you to do amazing things throughout the world. I'm going to bless you and lead you and provide for you and protect you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's my end of the covenant. Your end of the covenant is this, and it's the Ten Commandments. And so there was an actual back and forth agreement that was settled on on that day. And when the Ten Commandments, all the people of Israel were gathered together, the law had been all compiled, written by God. It was read before all of the people, and the people of Israel unanimously responded, everything you say we will do. So the covenant was ratified. God's going to protect them and look out for them, and they are going to live in accordance with his law. And it lasted maybe a day. And Israel's history is riddled with failure after failure after failure and idolatry and sin and rebelliousness and wandering and failure after failure after failure. And it got so bad that around the 600s BC, there was a king named Josiah in Israel, in Judah in particular, I should say. And that king pulls his priest aside. And he says to the priest, this is during the time of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah writes Jeremiah 31, and keep that up there if you would, Winston. When Jeremiah writes Jeremiah 31, this is the time frame that he is speaking into, okay? 
this King Josiah is there and he calls his, his kind of, calls his priest over and he says, hey, you know what? The temple over there, do me a favor. Let's remodel it. Let's polish it up. Let's make it nice. It's been a while. Now, don't misunderstand that to think like, man, I'm going to church and I'm serving and I just want the church to look nicer. That's not the case. It was really just a pride thing, if anything at all. The temple wasn't really being used the way it was intended anyway. And we know this because when that priest went into the temple to go remodel the whole temple, make everything look all nice, they found the scriptures. Notice what I say. They found them as in, hey, what's this? Oh, this is the law. That thing we were supposed to be following all along. God's word had been completely forgotten by the entire nation. And it's just like in a closet somewhere. And so the priest happens to be clean and he finds this. He brings it to Josiah's attention. And Josiah became known in a lot of circles as Josiah the Reformer. Because what Josiah did is when he saw these things, he began to repent And he was like, oh my goodness, this is the almighty God. This is Yahweh. This is the one who delivered us from Egypt. This is the one that we should be following. And he enacted all of these laws that just went all over the country. He ordered that the entire nation be rid of its idols and rid of its idolatry, instituted all the temple orders and programs, and just completely changed everything and said, from now on, we are going to follow God's word. This is what we're supposed to do. And the people were like, yeah. And there was massive reform in Israel and it lasted just a little while. You ever been that guy? I'm going to change. I'm getting rid of everything today and from now on, man, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to worship God every day. Three hours of devotion before I go to work every day starting tomorrow. Right? Sometimes it's the people that get all fired up fast that burn out the fastest. And that was Josiah. We're going to change. And the people, it just, it crumbled. It didn't happen. In fact, it gets to a point that God sends someone to Josiah and actually tells him, stop opposing God, the one who sent me, or it will destroy you. And he ignores it and is killed right after in battle by an Egyptian arrow. It just ended him. And so then God pulls this young kid, nobody of a prophet named Jeremiah and says, here's what you're going to write to the people. You're going to tell them, I'm going to do a new covenant. Not like the one that they all said they were going to do and they broke. Not like the one Josiah said he was going to do and he broke. I'm going to do something different. And here's why. This is even why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that this letter, uh, the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Because the issue is this. The law is completely external. If you read the Old Testament law, it's all behavior. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's all external. But it doesn't affect the heart. And here's the problem. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Do you understand the difference here? I know it seems like a chicken and the egg argument here, but this is really important. We sin because our nature is sinful. We have broken, corrupt hearts, and we sin out of that. We, ha- we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And so if we're given this external thing, we'll just do this, 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 and this. Oh, well, even if we pull all of this off, we look really good on the outside, but our heart's still wicked. How does mowing your neighbor's yard change your heart? How does not lying change your heart? It doesn't. You can do those things and look the part big time. And look at Judas, for example. 
I mean, he was the most noble in many people's eyes of all the disciples, and his heart was really, really wicked. He was stealing the entire time, the Bible tells us. And so God says, I'm going to do a new covenant. Not like that old one. I'm going to do something different. Not about laws written by pencil or written by my hand in stone, but I'm going to write on your heart. Also, Paul's words reference and another version of this exact same promise. If you'll go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel. You don't have to go there. We got a slide. There you go. Ezekiel 36 says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Did you see that last part? I will cause you to be able to walk in my statutes. I will give you the ability to obey all that I have written. See, the problem with the old covenant is all external, but there was nothing given the people that gave them the power to actually do what it said. And that was the whole point. The whole point of the law was that people would come to the end of themselves and realize, I can't do this. I need salvation because I have no hope of pulling this off on my own. That's the gospel. The gospel is the truth that we come to the understanding that we are fallen and have been separated from God because of our sinful nature, but that God was aware of this all the time and he's calling people to him and so he sent his son to invade history, to become, if you will, a nobody, to live in humility, to live in poverty, to set aside the glory of being king and to come and invade human history, to live in that way that we never could. But then Jesus Christ, the Son, God himself, then Jesus Christ was murdered and killed, though innocent, by sinful, wicked men that had wicked, sinful, selfish hearts. But even that was part of God's plan because when Jesus hung on the cross, God put all the wrath, all the punishment, all the guilt for all the sin that we have ever created and all the sin that we will ever do, put it all on Jesus Christ. And there he paid the penalty in full for our rebelliousness. He rose from the dead to prove that he has power over sin and to be able to grant to us new life. And now he offers to us who by faith and faith alone, by grace and grace alone, he offers salvation And he says that to those who will follow Jesus, he gives you now a what? A new heart. Oh, sure, don't get me wrong. We still struggle. We won't get our completely new bodies until that day when we're with him in person. But God is changing our hearts. He has given a new heart with new desires. Now, do we wrestle with sin? Yeah, but we don't want that anymore. We understand there's something better there. And so that's even what the idea of repentance, that we're turning from these things anymore. We're turning our back on this stuff, and we're saying, I'll follow you. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of just setting myself up for failure. I'm tired of sin breaking my heart over and over and over. And yet, like a slave, I keep chasing its promises again anyway, like an idiot. I'm tired of that. I'm going to follow you. And he gives us a new heart. And he gives us new desires. And he starts changing us. And that's when he gives us the power to be able to live out his law in general. When the Holy Spirit is put inside of us. Like when you guys walked in here, there was a banner on that door that said, Heritage, a gospel-centered church. And we put that on a lot of our literature. The reason we do that, because you say, well, isn't every church gospel-centered? No. Because there are a lot of churches historically that are focused on changing behavior first. 
So what we really got to do is we got to tell our kids not to drink. What we really got to do is tell our men's not to look at computers and not to do those things. We, what we really got to do is change them. But you can change behavior and still leave the heart corrupt. But I would actually even go further than that. I would say, I don't think you even change the behavior. I think you teach people how to fake it around the rest of the church people, and all the behavior stays the same. And you've never given them the power to deal with anything, and they're still stuck with a wicked, broken, sinful heart. And when Paul says, it's the spirit that gives life or the letter that gives death, you can preach behavior change to people and teach them this is what a Christian looks like, and they can fake it as they walk straight to hell. Because their hearts never got changed. And they're still rebellious from God. Even in that very behavior, in trying to do that work, they're walking away from God because they're saying, I can do it. I'll do it myself. I don't need you. And that's why the law kills. But the Spirit gives life. So when we say heritage is a gospel-centered church, it's because our desire, by the grace of God, and we fail in areas, but our desire is that everything we do start with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we teach someone how to change, but we haven't given them the spirit of God, that we haven't introduced them to the gospel that actually changes hearts, we haven't served them. And so the gospel has to be the motivating factor for everything that we do. Worship comes from the reality that God is good and that he saves wretches like me. Mission comes out of the reality that God took pity on me and wants to use that outreach to serve people out there. Everything stems from the fact that I am completely unable in and of myself. There is no sufficiency in me, but God, as we sang earlier, is absolutely mighty to save. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea that, look, we cannot earn it. You are fallen. People that preach the gospel without talking about sin, I don't know how you do that. How do you do that? (laughs) it's good news because it invades bad spaces in the first place. That's how it's good news. Otherwise, it's just news, right? Take it or leave it. But the gospel is that we are fallen, but that God has seen us. He has caught us. He has saved us. He has washed us. He is changing us. And one day, he will completely change and glorify us. So what's our part? Will you put that slide back up, Winston? There's our part. We just hang on to dad. We just follow Jesus. And we just go, man, anything he did is his effort, not mine. I'm just so grateful I got to be along for the ride. Have you seen how amazing my dad is? Have you met my dad? He's amazing. That's gospel ministry. That's what Paul's saying here. It's not about me. It's not about my letters. It's about my father. Amen? Amen. At this point, Sam's going to come forward, close us with some song. We're going to give opportunity to be able to respond to the gospel, be it through the giving of tithes and offerings, through worship. There'll be some men and women available in the back to be able to pray with you if you need prayer. But just take this as an opportunity to go, man, the Lord, you have revealed your gospel to me again. I, I, I need to worship you. This is amazing that you would save a wretch like me. And if you don't know the gospel, if if this is all brand new to you, and you're like, what do I do with this? If you've never succumbed, if you will, to the gospel, people love to say, give your heart to Jesus. I like succumbed. If you would just surrender and give up and say, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. And there are some people that would love to be, be back there to be able to pray with you.
to be able to shepherd you, to be able to, to walk with you in that. And we're just going to take opportunity even right now. Oh, that was quick. Where'd you come from? We're going to worship Jesus this morning. Amen? So you guys stand on your feet. Lord, we just pray that you would even in this place move. Lord, we thank you for the reality of your gospel. We thank you that your spirit has given life to your people. And so now, God, I pray that your people would sing from a heart that has been changed. That your spirit, Lord, would infuse our worship. God, I pray that that burdens would be set aside and hands lifted. That doubts and fears would be cast down and voices lifted to sing of the goodness of our King. And that you would minister to your people as we minister to your heart through praise. In Jesus' name. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me.